A lot of the things we're going to talk about in this series, by the way, because we are talking about the biblical approach to basically public issues. Christians in the public square, the biblical approach to political ideology, etc. A lot of these ideas, by the way, if you want to pursue them a little further, we have a Sunday school class here at 1045 on Sunday mornings that Ed Frankfurt teaches called the Truth Project. And that's a, a great uh, class. It's actually a series that dives into some of the foundational truths of the scripture. So if you're looking for something like that, 1045 Sunday mornings, Sunday school class. Secondly, uh, Israel trip, February 12th through 24th. We uh, have maybe 10 or 11 slots left on that trip. So if you're interested, it's at crossings.church slash Israel. You can check it out. It has the itinerary and everything you need to know. But we just uh, told you we'd keep you posted on that. So we wanted to do that. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right into our series tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray this evening for our nation. I pray for our leaders. I pray for this world that so desperately needs clear leadership and clear direction from you. For those who are followers, I pray that you would strengthen them. For those whose hearts are not tuned toward you, I pray that you would draw them toward you. But in all things we know that you are sovereign in all of history and all things move to your will and your purpose. I pray that you would give us faith to see it and courage to do it. I pray tonight that you'd open our hearts and minds and let your word and let your spirit adjust our thinking and our attitudes and reinvigorate us to go embrace this world and take your truth to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know we do some questions. We won't necessarily always get to all the questions, but Laura does a great job of kind of consolidating them and answering some of the biggest questions that we have. This series was, uh, you might ask, why are we doing this series? It's because we believe that God's word impacts every aspect of our life. And sometimes we see Christians who, uh, when we get out into the public square, we get intimidated or we kind of forget some of our biblical principles. And sometimes, especially if you look at the statistics, it's hard to tell the Christians from the non-Christians. And one of the things we do is we go back and we just recalibrate our minds to God's word. Why are we doing this series now? Well, obviously we're in a presidential race, big election for us, but we've done that before and not done a series like this. The reason for doing it now <laughs> is because I think I mean, if you watch what's happened in our two major political parties, there have been real sea changes in both parties. Different directions worked out a little differently, but things aren't the same. It's really shaken people's ideas and made everyone more open to saying, stepping back and saying, wait a minute. You know, when the, when the political landscape is shifting and the ideology is moving, both parties' uh, uh, agendas and planks are, have significantly changed in this cycle. It makes people step back and say, wait a minute, what do I really think? So I think this is a great time for it. Also, what I've noticed is, this might be the... Usually, we're gonna poke fun at everybody in this series. I just want you to know, it's gonna be equal opportunity. In typical election, about 51% of the people are happy and 49% are sad. This could be the first election where about 60% of the people are sad no matter who wins. 
I mean, there's just been a lot of disillusionment, and uh, the, I tell you, it's really, I'm going to show you polls as we move through this, although this isn't a series about the presidential election, but we're going to look at some polls because they're going to affect some of the questions we're going to talk about, particularly the social issues, but I do not recall a time when unfavorability ratings were quite as high as they were for both candidates, so it's, a, it's an odd time, it's an interesting time for us. Well, in our first series, we laid some groundwork. It was called Church and State. And I wanna go over just three key principles because we're gonna use these ideas again and again. So first of all, by the way, there are the topics for our series. We're gonna talk about terrorism and oppression in this lesson, but you'll see we're gonna do uh, all the issues that would be in the public square, some of them social, some of them more political. So these are the things that we're gonna be talking about over the next several weeks. First principle, God does not fit our political categories. God is the God of every nation through all of history. There have been political parties come and go, ideologies come and go, and God does not fit those categories. It's gonna challenge, it's gonna shape our thinking. I love Romans 12 too. It says we need to stop conforming to the pattern of the world and be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with God's word. It renews our mind. I like this Tim Keller quote. He says, he points out kind of something that really we ought to take to heart. If God is real, he's not going to align perfectly with our views. He is in the process of transforming us rather than him agreeing with what we already think. And so what, wherever we are, whatever party, whatever ideology we have, we should expect at some points to be challenged by God's word. I think you're going to find as we go through this step by step that there are certain ideologies, there are certain parties, there are certain political views that more closely align with God's word, and there are reasons for that. But I think you're gonna find that we're all gonna get challenged at some point. I should also mention one thing, because I'm getting some great feedback and some great mail from you guys, but just because I don't say something doesn't mean I don't believe it. In other words, it's hard to say everything in a, in a session, so what I'm gonna to try to do is distill it to some key ideas. The key idea here is we need to basically let God's word mold our head, our heart, and our hands. In other words, we want to think the way God thinks. We want to feel the way God feels. We want to have his compassion for the world. We want to care about what God cares about, and we want to be about with our hands doing his purposes in this world. That's the purpose of this series is that we can recalibrate that. Secondly, we talked quite a bit about this in our last lesson, but God ordains human governments. We looked at several passages. We're going to look at even more. Now, God ordains human governments, but he does not approve of all human governments. What we saw in Romans chapter 13 in particular was the clearest exposition of the legitimate God-given function of governments. God ordained human governments. In other words, he's not a disinterested observer. Like, hey, go save souls, and I don't know what you guys are doing politically. I don't really care. God is not a disinterested observer. He has ordained that we should have governments, authorities. But he's also given some legitimate purposes for those. But he does not approve all human governments, but he did ordain it. Here's one that we didn't talk about in John 19, 10 and 11. This is Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, this is later in the story. And by the way, I urge you to go read around the context of all these passages that I'm going to give you because I want to tap into themes, not interested in cherry-picking verses and playing around with it. I want to talk about the themes of the Bible. One of the great themes is this. Pilate says later to him, he says, look, you act like you're in charge of this interview, which he was. 
beaten, bloody, etc. And he's the guy who's actually running this interview. Pilate says, do you not realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all if it were not given you by God. From above is kind of Jewish uh, slang for from God. So Jesus is confirming this idea that earthly authority is only granted by God. Does not mean, however, that God approves of the governments. They're not all legitimately fulfilling their God-given functions. And then third, the Bible calls us to engagement, not separation. And I don't want to reteach this, but we're going to touch this a little because our culture has tried to convince us that the separation of church and state is a good idea. I'm going to argue to you that it's most certainly not a biblical idea and that as it's implemented now, I don't believe it's even a foundational American idea. I understand that there are roles for government and there's roles for church. The Bible's certainly going to apply that. But the idea of freedom of religion becoming freedom from religion is neither an American idea and it's certainly not a biblical idea. We're called to, to basically confront the world for Christ. One of the things I like to say is faith is personal, but it is never private. As you read your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you're going to realize faith can never be private. It must act. You'll see that on almost every page of the New Testament. This is a great little book called City of Man, modeled off of a book Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago, but basically talks about a tendency, and I, I told you that last time that I think Christians are susceptible to this because you're so nice. And when people say, look, it's not fair for you to bring your ideas into the public square, we talked last time, every time a law is passed, every time a policy is instituted, somebody's values are being enacted into law. And so I like that quote. The idea is, is that no, America's set up to be a level playing field. And freedom of religion does not mean exclusion. It simply means government impartiality. And I think that's healthy. The Bible calls us to engage our culture, not to separate ourselves from it. So those are the three things I wanted to cover from last time because you're going to see those, we're going to build on those ideas as we begin to apply these biblical themes to issues of the day, okay? All right, let's talk about terrorism and oppression. This is an issue that's both domestic and foreign, and it's become more real to us. It's certainly in the news. It's a major political uh, agenda for both parties. It's something that's very much on our minds as we see what's happening in the Middle East. We see what the policies of open borders and multiculturalism, how that's being played out in Europe with some uh, relatively disastrous effects. And then we've actually been touched here in America firsthand by terrorism in a rate greater than we've ever seen before. Even if the significance is not greater, the rate is certainly greater. What we're realizing is that what happens anywhere in the world tends to affect all of the world. But you know that, and we knew that from long ago, but most recently, think of things like Brexit and the economic impact, uh, a European meltdown, the uh, troubles in Greece, the EU's problems. You can see how what happens in one nation can drag the whole world there, the Zika virus. There are no borders for disease. There are no borders for violence. We see terrorism spilling out. It's no longer a national issue. It's a transnational issue. So what happens anywhere in the world tends to affect a lot of the rest of the world. That's not necessarily the reason that the Bible is going to have us confront terrorism and oppression in the world, but certainly the effect has gotten everyone's attention. I showed you this picture and... Uh, 
I don't like to show you these kinds of pictures, but this has been all over the news. This little five-year-old boy has literally put a face on war for the world, and it's really galvanized the world. This uh, little boy was pulled out of some rubble in Aleppo, Syria, but this boy could be in a lot of places in the world. I'm gonna talk about two or three issues il to illustrate the fact of the compelling nature of terrorism and oppression. And then we're gonna talk about some biblical principles of how do we go about confronting it. But basically what you have here is ISIS, which is a terrorist organization in every respect. I'm gonna talk about those guys a, a little bit more in a moment. And then he was injured in an airstrike either by the Syrians or by the Russians. It's hard to know. But bottom line is you've got a terrorist organization in the form of ISIS, you have an oppressive government in the form of Syria, and you have an expansionistic, imperialistic government in the form of Russia. You have all of our themes playing themselves out with disastrous results in Syria and other places in the world. But this idea of terrorism and oppression is something that is compelling to us even if it did not hit our shores. And it certainly has spilled over to our shores. So I wanna talk about terrorism and oppression a little bit. First of all, terrorism. This was an interesting article, and there are all kinds of interesting articles, about a week ago, on the Islamic State turning children into terrorists. Now this is not the only thing that's uh, really abhorrent about the Islamic State, of course, but it's one that taps into something we talked about last time. Last time I said to you that the most important battle that we face in our political arena in America is the battle for the minds of our children. The difficulties that we have right now are severe and they're significant and our differences are significant and our way to harmony and peace are challenging. But if we neglect the next generation, our problems will not get better. And so the minds of our children, and it's interesting to focus on how children are faring in the world today, because to me that's a barometer of where we're going to be down the road. Uh, you've probably heard in the news recently in uh, Kirkuk, Iraq, there was a 12 or 13 year old boy. Uh, the police were able to get him and defuse his bomb uh, that had been strapped on him before he could explode. He talked about how some mass men had strapped it on him. And so here's a 12 or 13 year old suicide bomber. Uh, of course, the young person in uh, southeastern Turkey, I believe it was, yeah, southeastern Turkey, blew himself up at a wedding, killed 54 people, uh, injured 70 other people. The Islamic State has a policy to recruit children, and the Islamic State brags that they have had 143 child martyrs. That means who've gone into battle or who've blown themselves up. And it's a specific strategy for them. The UN estimates that 362 children were introduced into the Syrian theater of war just in April of this year. And not all from that area, a number of them coming from England and France. And so you begin to see how this idea of terrorism has far reaching implications for the world. Uh, August 31st, actually, today I heard a report, the Islamic State, this isn't about children, but they've just now found some mass graves in Syria, 15,000 bodies. So what used to be a problem of terrorism, and we'd see horrific things happening on a relatively small scale, you now see terrorism bursting out on a very broad scale, and not just in the Middle East. So the idea of terrorism, for several reasons, has engaged everyone's political radar, and certainly America's political radar.
want to talk a little bit about other things besides terrorism. We'll talk about oppression because I want to lump this together because I think the Bible speaks to all of these topics. That really well-fed looking guy on the right of your screen <laughs> is maybe the only well-fed guy in his country. Kim Jong-un is the ruler of North Korea. North Korea is the recipient of generations of oppression. Uh, the population of North Korea now is averages a few inches shorter than the population of South Korea. The chronic malnutrition and oppression has taken an unbelievable toll in that country. And so the question naturally arises, what do you do about oppression? Terrorism is one thing. You see those atrocities, you see them spilling out beyond national borders. And so it tends to engage the international community. All of these atrocities, at least for now, are occurring inside a nation. And so it brings up issues of sovereignty. Don't nations have the right to do what they want in their own countries? And so the Bible is gonna to speak to that as well, the idea of oppression. On the left, you see everybody's favorite empire builder, Vladimir Putin, moved into the Crimea, currently working on an excuse to invade the Ukraine and massing troops on the border of Ukraine. Of course, the entire European Union's getting nervous. All of the former Soviet client states are extremely nervous because there doesn't seem to be anything internationally happening to restrain this. Vladimir Putin is the poster child for imperialism. In other words, it's a weak world. There's no strong player in the world who's willing to confront him, and so he begins to gobble up territories, going to rebuild the Russian Empire. You see China doing some similar things, moving out into the South China Sea, uh, putting uh, bases into Africa, in other words, expanding. So you see three different ideas here. One is terrorism, groups that are non-state actors doing horrific things to civilian populations as well as military for the shock value, to promote a particular ideology. You see oppressive regimes who are at least for now content to stay within their boundaries but exploit their people mercilessly. And then thirdly, you see expansionistic regimes who are intent upon imposing their will on other nations in the world to build those empires. So this is kind of the, the issue that we want to address and I wanted to define that issue a little bit. So it's, when I say terrorism and oppression, these are the kinds of issues that we're talking about. Naturally, these issues come onto our political stage. They also come onto our radar as Christians as well, okay? One thing I will say before I move on in this, you might, the, particularly the North Korea. Now I realize North Korea is a problem because they also have nuclear weapons and they're also insanely developing missiles that can deliver them at long distance. They're very provocative. But that's, that's an interesting truth historically, by the way. Oppressive nations tend to be aggressive nations. And that's just historically true, uh, by and large, is oppressive nations tend to be aggressive nations. In other words, the way a nation deals with human rights, the way its thinking, its morality, its ideology approaches the issue of human rights is often very closely tied to how it behaves as an actor on the world stage. And so that's why you see so many people concerned about North Korea, even though at the moment 
They're not hurting anybody except North Koreans. Now that's compelling enough for a Christian, but it's also alarming on the world stage because no one thinks that's gonna stay that way. So oppressive nations are concerning for a lot of reasons. Well, let's talk about some biblical themes that we want to apply to this problem. How do we as Christians, as we think about policies, what ought we to do? Do we have a role to play in restraining imperialism in the world? Do we have a role to play in defending the powerless in a country whose government has them in a death grip? What kind of role should we play with terrorism around the world? Should we simply keep it out of our borders? Must we be aggressive and go confront this uh, outside our borders? These are the kinds of questions that come up politically. I want to think about, think about this biblically. So what are some of the ways that the Bible approaches this? There's a love this quote, by the way, by Abraham Lincoln. This so captures, so perfectly captures uh, the, the biblical idea. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. This is a radical mental shift, by the way, because a lot of times as Americans, what do we want? God bless America. God be on our side. I'm for that. I'm all for God blessing America. But I think he really has something powerful to say here that taps into something essentially Christian, and that is it's not as much about whether God is on our side. The best way for that to happen is for us to be on God's side. In other words, let's conform ourselves to God's will, and then whatever happens, we can be comfortable that God is on our side because we are with him. And I think you saw that in the way Abraham Lincoln governed, and I think that's a great model for us today. One thing I wanna point out here that is gonna cause a little parting of the ways when Christians and non-Christians confront some of the issues of the day. It's a very foundational idea. It's called a Christian anthropology. And what anthropology is, is basically your view of humanity, your view of mankind. The Bible has a different view of mankind than many of your secular-minded neighbors, and certainly many in the political arena. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Bible holds the view that humanity is bent toward evil. In other words, because of the fall, we are bent towards sin. Now, if I say it that way, you go, oh, well, absolutely, I understand that. We are bent towards sin. We need a savior because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves good enough for God. When I say it that way, you say, oh, well, absolutely, pastor. That is exactly what the Bible teaches. Well, I want to take that out of the church for a second and give you the implication of that in the world. All human beings are bent towards sin. Human beings are not perfectible on their own, neither by evolutionary processes nor by social processes. Now, do not uh, hear me say that we should not advance education and health care and living conditions. Of course we should. But the Bible does not hold out the idea that we can make people perfectible if we'll just educate them or give them a job or whatever. We will always be bent towards sin. Our country is founded on this idea. This is the understanding of our founding fathers. Whether you think they're all Christians or not, no doubt this country is founded upon the biblical idea of the sinfulness of humanity. Our government has checks and balances. Our government is built for moral, religious people. Remember our John Adams quote last time? It said, this nation 
will not exist without a moral, religious population. Why? Because laws by themselves cannot govern the passions, what he called the unbridled passions of humanity. But our government tries as best it can, and it has succeeded quite well for over 230 years in controlling those impulses of humanity. And so the way the Bible wants to come at solving some of these problems is with the assumption that we are not perfectible on our own. It's only the Spirit of God that can transform us into the image of Christ, and that we must take that into account. Very different point of view, for example, from other secular ideologies, which would say you can solve your problems if you talk about it long enough. I mean, that's effectively what, what you get. The Bible does not think you can solve all the problems by talking about them long enough. And let me give you the bottom line. A biblical idea is that there are certain things that are actually evil. That is not a, a popular thing to say in our culture, is we don't want to talk about evil because that begins to think about good and bad, right and wrong, and it begins to imply that we as human beings are lacking something and we do not determine our own course. And that is indeed a biblical idea. And the, if we will acknowledge that, I believe we will be more successful in the world. For example, some people approach international relations in a very realistic way, kind of a balance of power way. And I have to say that at least recognizes that human beings will pursue their own self-interest, that we tend not to pursue higher ideals on our own. We are not perfectible. But others want to look at it and say, if we can just get everybody a job and get their economy better and get some more education, and we talk about this a little, everyone's going to agree. And so the way we approach some of these problems is going to vary because of our anthropology, what we think about humanity. And the biblical anthropology is that there is such a thing as evil and that we are all, we need to recognize the reality that we all are bent towards sin. That's going to make a difference in how we approach some things. Let's talk about what the Bible teaches. I'm going to just hone in on two or three key ideas and key principles. The first one is this, and James 1.27 says it as well as anywhere else. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. In other words, we want to affect the world, not have the world affect us kind of that leavening principle that Jesus talked a lot about. He said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light. You are the leaven in the yeast. You need a little bit of leaven can affect the whole loaf of bread, so to speak. So what he's saying here is be the leaven. You know, go affect the world. It's, again, that outward focused. Go confront the world. You are going to transform it by God's spirit. But as we do it, we're called to help the helpless. You'll see this throughout the entire Bible and especially in the New Testament, is that we have a mandate to help the helpless in the world. Those who are marginalized, those who are disenfranchised, we're here to help anyone who comes across our path, but you see Jesus in particular gravitating to those whom society has marginalized, those who are subject to exploitation. And this is a very biblical idea that we have a keen awareness because God's heart goes out to the brokenhearted. God's heart goes out to the fatherless, to those who are oppressed, those who are afflicted. Those are things that, that are biblical ideas, that we're called to help the helpless, and we're called to do it in tangible ways. Great little passage in James talking about our faith being put into action. 
probably read this before, but he says, look, he says, if you claim to have faith, but you don't do anything with it, he said, that's not the kind of faith that transforms you. That is not a faith that can actually save you. He says, look, you find someone who has these needs and you say, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but we don't do anything about it. What good is that? He said, if your faith stays here, if it's private faith, it's personal, but it's not private. It has to act in the world. And so we're called to help the helpless and we're called to do it in tangible ways. Prayer is very powerful. So don't hear me saying that we, we should not be praying about situations of all kinds, especially situations that our limited ability cannot really affect. But we are called to affect and to help the helpless everywhere we are able to help the helpless. That's our mandate. Well, that seems clear enough. That would say that when it comes to terrorism and oppression and imperialism, that we should go reach out to those people and we should go help them. And maybe we'll just all, you know, get our guns and go over there and just go punish the bad guys. But you might say, well, what about that teaching though? And this is the one I wanna wrestle with just a little bit of love your enemy. And this I think is, is where a question we need to wrestle with. This is not children's Sunday school, by the way. This is grown up. So we're gonna wrestle with some tension and some ideas here. And this is one of them. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now, bottom line, that's an easy thing to do. We love America, we hate America's enemies. We love people that act well, we hate people that oppress other people. And Jesus said, and that seems pretty comfortable, doesn't it? And you see a lot of politics and a lot of public policy being done that way. But we have a little different mandate. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He says, if you love only those people that love you, he says, even the non-believers do that. He said, if you greet only your brothers, so what? Everybody does that. The pagans do that. So we've got this call to love your enemies. People take this two different ways. Let me show you what I mean. Loving your enemy, what does that mean? And then I want to talk about that intention with the idea of loving your neighbor. But here's, I like this bumper sticker, by the way. I've seen a few of these around. This is one way to understand this passage. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably didn't mean kill them. Well, it's a little simplistic, it's glib. I mean, let's be honest, it has the, glib means you have the semblance of profound, but it's actually very shallow. If you don't know what I mean, just get on Twitter. Okay? Twitter is the glib universe. You know, it's the place where you can get a 140 character sentence and go, Oh, that's deep, and not remember it three minutes later. You know, okay, that's glib, right? This is a little glib, but clever, very clever. And some people look at that and say, wait a minute, how can we go take our army and go right the wrongs of the world when we're supposed to love our enemy? Can we actually kill anybody? In fact, there are some Christians historically who have been pacifists. There are certain groups of Christians, denominations throughout history, small, but nonetheless, who take this in this way. Well, there's a flip side to this, too. I want to show you a quote back from uh, Osama bin Laden days. This is Norman Schwarzkopf. <laughs> Talking about Osama bin Laden, he said, I don't know about forgiving him. That's God's job. I just want to arrange the meeting. <laughs> I don't think he actually said that, but later when told that, he said, boy, I wish I'd said that. So I'm just going to give him uh, credit for it. 
Well, that's a little different view, isn't it? It's like, look, God's going to be the one that does that. All I know is I'm going to go stop this evil from happening in the world, right? And so you, you get this tension around what does it actually mean to love your enemy? And that's a great question because love in the New Testament is a very active thing. It's not a feeling. I mean, love, it, it feels good to feel in love, but love in the New Testament is not a feeling because if that were true, every one of us is sinning every day on this love your enemy thing. It is just really not possible to feel good about your enemy. That's not what love means. Love means pursuing what is in their best interest, what is good for them. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, I hate to tell you this, but I do not think while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unlovely, and that's putting it kindly, Christ died for us. I don't think he's there on the cross saying, I just like that Terry Fakes, that little scoundrel. He's just done so many evil, sinful things in his life, but you know, there's just something about him I like. No, that's real love, which says, even when we were unlovable, Christ died for us. So that's a little different. It's a higher standard, but it gets us into a little more of an adult realm like, well, then we need to seek the good. But we need to seek the good of our enemies as well. So, love your enemies. Now I'll put this into tension a little bit with the idea of loving your neighbor. This is a great passage in Luke 10. Uh, one of the teachers stands up, says to Jesus, what do I need to do to go to heaven? He says, well, how do you read the law? Law of Moses. He said, well, the law of Moses can be summarized in these two statements. And by the way, the rabbis had thought that for about 100 years. So that's not a new thing. He said, basically, if you had to summarize it, it'd be love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that's right. Go do that. And he said, well, that's too easy. He said, uh, well, who's my neighbor? Because the Jews believed your neighbor were fellow Jews. And for us, that kind of applies, because sometimes we think we're going to love our neighbor. That means people like us. That means Americans. Well, no, wait, that's too big. We don't, even, we don't like all of them either. People that have my political persuasion or people that, you know, you see what I'm saying? We all kind of sympathize with this guy, because he doesn't look like a very good guy. But honestly, we all feel this way a little bit, don't we? He said, well, well who's my neighbor? You may remember this great parable of the Good Samaritan. I'll let you read it, but I'm going to summarize it. And basically, he said, well, let me just tell you a story. He said, there's a guy who really needs some help. He's been beat up by robbers. He's been terrorists have attacked him. And so, you know, priest goes by, Levite goes by. These are good Jewish people. And they're like, whoa, sorry, I'd like to help you, buddy, but I can't. I'll pray for you when I get a chance. And then the Samaritan comes by. Well, he picked that as kind of a poke in the eye. Samaritans were despised by the Jews. I mean, they were, they were deadly enemies. And he said, and he stopped and he helped him. So Jesus is kind of making a point, obviously. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is this. He said, so who was the neighbor to the man? And he said, well, the one who had mercy on him. And so what you see with this idea of loving your neighbor is the idea of helping those who are helpless, regardless of who they are. I mean, this is a Samaritan helping a Jew. It would be like a Christian helping a Muslim. This would be like a black man helping a white man. It's just pick any kind of tension in the world, and there's far too much of it. You know, pick any tension you want. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, look, you just pick whoever you like the least, and I want you to know that's who you need to help because that's your neighbor. 
So we've got these two ideas. We've got the idea of love your enemy, love your neighbor. So how are we going to pull these things together? Because we have the mandate to help the helpless. Well, the way Christians have traditionally done that is, first of all, I want you to understand that we typically immediately go to the idea of war and go to the idea of killing. And I want to talk about that because I don't want to dodge the hard issue, but I do want to tell you, there are an awful lot of ways to exert power in the world that doesn't involve killing people. And we're going to talk about that in a minute at the end, but we are called to use all of the resources we've been given to go do good in the world, to confront our enemies, to protect the helpless, so that we can be loving to both. But one is war, and Christians have traditionally, when it comes to the issue, when push comes to shove, let's say we pick one of these cases like ISIS doing horrific evil. That is just evil. Bible calls that evil. Not misguided, not poorly educated, not we just haven't talked about this enough. It's evil. And so how do we confront that and still love the people, our enemies, who are doing evil? How do we confront this? Christians traditionally, long tradition of this, not unanimous in the church, but huge tradition in the church, is the idea of a just war. In other words, there are circumstances as a last resort wherein the needs of your neighbor, that helpless person, need to be dealt with in a physical way, even including violence. And so the idea of a just war, a just war is built around the idea that it can't be, a, I mean, obviously invading Ukraine is not a just war, according to the Bible, because the purpose for that are self-focused rather than loving, rather than trying to help or free people or relieve suffering. But Christians have typically held that if that is what has to happen, it is possible to have a just war. In other words, to go to the aid of those who are being oppressed, who are being mistreated. Again, we maxed out here on the worst possible scenario, but I at least want to talk to you. And Augustine captures this because the idea here is motive matters. He said it ought to be necessity and not your will that destroys any enemy fighting against you. And what he means by that is I am actually trying to accomplish something that is a God-given responsibility, and this has become an unavoidable necessity. So in other words, the motive matters. Going to fight ISIS because we hate ISIS is not a biblical reason to go to war. Does that make sense? In other words, motive matters. It has to be for God-given purposes. And I'm not just talking about Christians now who might be in the military. I'm talking about God's mandate for governments as well. So it's about motives. But the idea of a just war has typically been accepted by Christians. And then I showed you this before, and when I say motives matter, what I mean by that is our barometer is high truth and high compassion. High truth and high compassion. And in our political arena, we talked about this a little bit, but typically this is where stereotypically you find the conservatives. I mean, this is, it's a stereotype, so this is not applying to everybody. But fundamentally, conservatives are principle-oriented, truth-oriented, but not much on the compassion scale. And then liberals, typically high compassion, not necessarily high. Now, these are stereotypes. So I understand that, but if you think, if you watch 
our political arena in America, you'll see this dichotomy play itself out a lot. And the point I'm making is that's where the cross is. High truth, high compassion. Our motives matter more than our ideology matters. In other words, what is the end? The, the goal of our actions are hugely important uh, from a biblical point of view. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to go to um, some applications on this, but before we do, I figured we'd probably have a couple of questions. I kind of apologize for blitzing through this. We could talk about this for hours, but I'm trying to crystallize it into some key biblical themes, and then I want you to think this through. Let's work this out together. Let's, as Isaiah says, come let us reason together, and let's take these biblical ideas, and let's go talk about it, and let's go confront our culture in a biblical way. Question? So... Would you consider it to have been a good thing or a bad thing to fight against Hitler and kill him as he was persecuting others? As he, I'm sorry, persecuting? Persecuting and killing others. Oh, right. Whether, yeah, that was a war that most Christians, actually, that's an ugly little story, uh, by the way. I'll try to be brief, okay? First of all, you have the church in Germany while these things are going on. And the church in Germany, i got to give you a really short version of this, but basically the church in Germany had two things happening. I'm really oversimplifying this, but number one, nationalism. In other words, and this is something, I know I'm going to offend you just a little bit by saying this, we need to be careful about this because we live in the greatest country in the world. And it's really easy for us to identify, get our identity a little too much American, not quite enough Christ-oriented. Again, I'm proud to be an American. Don't misunderstand me. But that's what happened in Germany, is there was a strong sense of nationalism. Uh, we're proud of our country. We're coming back after World War I, World War II. We've been humiliated. We're proud German people. And you begin to see churches identifying themselves as German, maybe a little more than Christian. Again, I'm really oversimplifying. That's one thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening, as soon as you begin to see the brown shirts and Hitler and those guys come to power, the churches were cowed. In other words, they were squeezed back into the corner and they were afraid, really, to speak into that environment. It was a lot easier to adopt a sort of a separation of church and state mentality. So that was an ugly thing that happened. Now, it's 2020 hindsight, and if I sound like I'm morally superior to them, that's not my intention. That had to be very difficult, and I don't know that I would have done better than that, but it was wrong, no matter who of us did it. And so you see that situation where the church did not confront its culture and take God's ideas into the culture. So that was step one. Step two, around the rest of the world, you tended to see Christians seeing this as a just war. You have genocide going on against the Jews. You have unbelievable oppression happening and just empire building and just unbelievable number of people being killed with an evil force. And so Christians tended to see that as indeed a just war, not a war to punish Hitler, a war to free these people and end this suffering. And so Christians thought that that was indeed a viable reason. But it's kind of interesting to see the church's role in that on both sides, in Germany and outside. Did the fact that we had been attacked have anything to do with our justification in that war? Well, 
two questions there, one of which I'll answer, the other I'll let go, although it's fascinating. I'd love to talk to you about this. But basically, why did the U.S. get into the Second World War? This is just fascinating, but it's, it's not in the scope of this. We were a little isolationist at that time. If you think about it, we didn't get into the war in a, in a meaningful way until we were attacked, right? Which you have to look back as one of the great strategic blunders of history. FDR had been surreptitiously and really bending a lot of rules to help keep uh, Great Britain from going under, but we were pretty isolationist. And the, our motivation, at least as a nation getting into that war, was responding to our own national security. I'd like to answer that from a different point of view because national security is not a compelling biblical theme. You didn't hear me say there, it says, oh, by the way, and the Bible says fight for your country no matter what. That's not the compelling biblical theme. Now, I think there are biblical reasons to get into that war, and one might suggest that biblically, perhaps we should have done more sooner. I don't mean that to sound critical. I'm just saying you see two sets of standards here, a biblical standard to reach out and that standard, which, uh, which again, I don't want to second guess the people in history, but... We, we, had, we got into that war for reasons that were a little bit different than uh, the Bible might, might pursue us. And in that case, you have to think uh, FDR, and I don't know if you're Republican or Democrat or whatever, but fundamentally doing some things to help Great Britain undoubtedly helped to alleviate a great deal of suffering. So, good question. Okay, so how do you either separate or combine those two ideas? that Christians have a certain justification for war, but the government has a responsibility to protect its citizens, first and foremost. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, this is gonna get a little complicated, but basically, you need to think about the fact that government has, does not derive, this is gonna be unpopular, but this is just a biblical idea, sorry. Government does not derive its sovereignty from the consent of the governed, and I know we love that idea in the world right now. There is a social contract between the government and the people. That's not a bad thing. Governments need to perform certain functions. Romans 13 says it needs to do justice, it needs to promote peace, and in general, promote human flourishing. That's just a good way to summarize that. That does encompass the idea of not letting your citizens be massacred by an invading army. So I'm comfortable with that, but I do want you to know that the reason that I think governments have that mandate is because God has given it to them, not because you and I have. Do you understand what I'm saying? You could be in a democracy. I talked to you about the Athenians, the ancient Athenians back in the... Oh, back in a lot of times, but think about the Persian Wars, uh, the Peloponnesian Wars, 1,600 years, uh, well, actually more than that, over 2,000 years ago. But basically what was happening there is you have a democracy that voted to go conquer a bunch of other countries. So in other words, is that government then legitimate? It is exercising the will of the people. That is not what makes it legitimate. God is what makes governments legitimate. And pursuing justice and peace and human flourishing is what? So, long-winded answer to say, yes, governments protecting their citizens is a good thing, but maybe for a little different reason than we typically think. And this is gonna be key as we act as Christians in the public sphere, we're gonna do some things that are gonna agree with a Democrat or a Republican or who knows what other party, but we might be doing it for a little different reason and with a little different end in mind. And our end is to be to fulfill the God-given purposes of government. 
Protecting your citizens is a good thing. Protecting some other people's citizens is not a bad thing either. Promoting peace and flourishing in the world is also a function of legitimate government. But yes, our government should protect us. How's that for a really long-winded answer to a simple question? We do a lot of debating and arguing about what the best way to help other people is. Do we apply that? And we're somewhat ineffective at applying it in our own country. But then we look at applying it in other places when you see genocide and other things and evil happening in other places. So what's the Christian perspective on that? Is ISIS evil and 15,000 people in graves found in the last week? What is our Christian response to that? Yeah, I don't think most people have a hard time identifying what's evil. I mean, I don't think we do. I think our country still has a fairly good moral compass for identifying what's right and wrong. We don't necessarily want to call it that. But ISIS, is, that is clearly evil deeds being done in the world. There's no way to justify that through any kind of rationale. So yes, that is evil. Where you're gonna see Christians respond a little bit differently is notice how the different nations of the world respond to this. I mean, it, this is just the way of the secular world, the way of the world out there. The instability that ISIS is introducing into the Middle East plays into Iran's goals. And so you'll see Iran doing some things in this circumstance, but basically exploiting it. This also plays into Russia's ambitions. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. Russia's ambitions. Russia, we have marginalized Russia in the Middle East through the Nixon and Kissinger and Ford era. And now Russia is a key player in the Middle East that serves its geopolitical interests in the region. From a biblical point of view, we tend to want to act in those situations for the reasons God wants us to act in the region. Those motives I just gave you are not biblical reasons to act in that region. And that's where I do think that yes, we have a part to play there and we come at it from a different perspective. It's not self-interest. We'll be happy to use the suffering of these people to promote our self-interest. We as Christians come to this to say, we actually want to relieve this suffering in the situation. So yes, I do believe we have an obligation there. The question of how we do it is a very interesting question, but it's most important first to know what are we trying to do. And so what we are trying to do is God-given function of government. We're not trying to improve our position in the Middle East or secure our oil lines or you know, whatever other purposes it may be. We need to be primarily motivated to be just, to be righteous by the things that God values in that situation. But it's really easy when you look at the other players on the stage that you see their motives are pretty transparent and those motives don't really stand up well to a biblical test. But you would separate that from the country's perspective on whether or not those are valid motivations? No, that's a good question. I would not. For example, if you think about it, I'm going to suggest to you that the uniquely biblical idea, and particularly American, I'm going to stick with America for a moment, is this. We want to go influence our government to fulfill its God-given obligations. I do not believe that it is, uh, as I understand the scriptures, I don't think we're going to get off the hook by saying, well, we're Christians and we'd love to help ISIS, but our government is just gonna go 
or we're gonna, we'd love to help suffering people in the world. Excuse me, that was a bad, uh, bad Freudian slip there. We do not want to help ISIS. But, but our government is free to go pursue whatever ends it wants. That's the massive cop-out. Now, our government may go pursue whatever ends it wants. We may or may not be able to influence it, but I think that's the whole point. If we are called to engage our, our culture, if we're called to engage our government and its policies, we want to engage them in a way that encourages our government to act in godly ways, to fulfill the God-given functions of government. So I do not want to put up a wall. I cannot find a biblical reason to say, well, we're holy and we're good people, and government, you just go do all the dirty work over there. Because government has a God-given function as well as the church, and I think that we need to engage one another. So I don't think it's sufficient to say, governments can do whatever they want, Christians will just be nice. I think that's too, too clean a line to put there. It's a total separation. Yeah, that wasn't really what I think this is getting at, but um, anyway. <laughs> Since you brought it up, why don't you tell us what is the government's responsibility about ISIS, and is that something different than the Christian's responsibility? Right. Well, governments are going to behave in governmental ways, and they're not, governments are not necessarily Christian. But for government to be legitimate, it needs to be pursuing its God-given functions in the world. So what we want to do, and let's go ahead and skip here just a tad, Here's an application. I think a strong America, and we'll answer this question in this context, is a powerful force for peace and justice in the world. I think as Americans, we should want our nation to be strong. And I mean strong, morally strong, economically strong, militarily strong. I believe a strong America is a powerful force for peace and justice in the world. And what are some of those God-given uh, legitimate functions of government? To do justice provide peace, promote human flourishing. I think America is a powerful force for God-given mission in the world. Again, I'm not talking about are we a Christian nation, etc. I want to just sidestep that. For any government to be legitimate, I think it needs to be doing what God ordains it to do. I realize many don't, and I realize that some that do do it imperfectly. I understand that, but I think America is a strong, powerful force for peace and justice in the world. What then is our role in that process. Knowing that God has ordained this government to be about that, we need to be advocating that in our world. If I, we lived in North Korea, we would A, not be having this talk because it would be illegal, but B, I would be saying, we are not able to do that in this nation. We will then do what things we can, and they may be very small things in a place where you're oppressed. But you and I don't have that excuse. We can go speak into the public square we can talk about this vision for America to go fulfill its God-given purposes. And I don't mean that in a sense like America's more God-blessed than any other nation. God wants every nation to fulfill the legitimate functions. America just happens to be founded on these principles, and God has used America in powerful ways. We need to go advocate for that. We need to be engaged in the politics. We need to be engaged in media. We need to be engaged in business. We need to be engaged in the public square. And what should we be saying? We should be saying God has an intention for us as individuals, us as a church, and us as a nation. And so we should be advocating for that. So what should the government be doing? We should be advocating that the government be about this, which means we have to care about the helpless in the world. 
I do not mean by that that we can fix all the world's problems. I understand that. But it must be a motivation for us as a nation. When you say that America should be a powerful force for peace, are you talking about a pacifist nation? Yeah, good question. I'm, I'm not talking about a pacifist or an isolationist idea. If you think about being a force for peace, we're, we're always talking about fighting. That's like, that's the last resort. A morally strong America leads the world. And I don't mean that to be in a partisan or nationalistic sense. That's just true. America has been a moral force for freedom, justice, peace in the world. America has been an economic force. America has restrained many of the bad actors in the world by projecting economic power to harness the natural inclination of humans to do mischief. That makes sense? America has militarily prevented a lot of imperialistic action without ever firing, firing a shot. We project this influence in many ways that don't involve shooting people. I'm gonna to suggest to you that's loving your enemy. In other words, if we can keep the bad actors of the world from acting out with our influence, we have done a loving thing to everyone concerned. Does that make sense? America's a powerful force for peace and justice in many ways, mainly preventative and leadership, and as a very last resort in very limited cases, militarily. That's the vision for America that I think Christians take into the public sphere. I don't know why anybody wouldn't buy into that. But nobody's advocating it at the moment. Are you talking about Reagan's strength through peace? Or peace through strength? I Sorry. am endorsing Reagan in this election. That's yeah. exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. The idea. Peace through strength taps idea. into this idea. It's the, it is the very practical realization that if our end goal is a God-given end goal, it's not expansion, it's not exploitation, it's not make us rich and everybody else poor. That's not our goal. If our goal is peace in the world, then let's use the God-given things that we have been uh, have to do that. And that's right. I think that plays into that very well. But hopefully you're getting the idea here is that as we go engage, we need to have a vision for that engagement. I'm going to suggest that vision needs to be the God-given mandate for a really legitimate government. Our nation has been that, much of our history, our nation can still be that. But I don't think our nation is gonna be that if we pull back from the engagement. I think Christians, I think God, through his people, has powerful things to say and has a powerful vision of America and of any country. It would be wonderful, if you think about it, to get onto the world stage and have a number of countries who thought that way think what can happen in the world. Think what America has done basically with limited allies who thought that way. Think what would happen if we transformed it. Second thing, the church also has a role to play. And the church has a role to play in politics, but the church has a role to play, and the biggest hurdle is us being globally minded. I think sometimes we can identify too much as American Christians as opposed to God's people being about his work in the world. And I do not necessarily mean around our borders. We're called to take the good news 
You know, go and make disciples of all the nations, and that includes ours as well. There are hopeless, helpless people in our neighborhoods as well. But we need to act wherever we are, but we need to think in a very global way. Because God has business, if you want to call it that, in this world, and we need to think about impacting that. We'll impact it some through influencing our nation to be the nation God called it to be. We'll influence it by fee- and when then and churches do this already hugely, and we need to continue to think this way by feeding and clothing and healing and helping people all over the world, regardless of who they are. Church kind of gets a bad rap in the world. I'm not talking about just in America, in the world, as being, oh, you're those Christians who say you know what's right and wrong. Yes, we do, and by the way, we're going to show you that by helping the world. A great amount of what's happening in the world in terms of relief, not everything, is hugely motivated by this. So we as a church need to be very globally minded because I think we can promote lasting change and healing in the world. And I think when we engage our government, we can actually project the God-given powers of our nation to go do his purposes in the world. So should we confront terrorism and oppression in the world? I believe that we should take the biblical message to our nation because we have that right, we have that freedom, and encourage in every way that we can with our votes, with our candidates, with our voices, that this nation be about those purposes in the world to go do justice, bring peace, and promote human flourishing in the world. Make sense? That's kind of the idea of, in other words, that doesn't answer the question, well, should we go to war against ISIS? Should we do this? Well, I'd be happy if first we recognize it as the threat that it is. And I think we need to speak that, that there's a threat here. And it's not just an existential threat. One of the things that's happening currently, uh, and you've seen this in the news recently with very high people in, the, in this administration, is the idea that terrorism is not an existential threat to America. That may be true. It might be true. It's certainly a threat. It may or may not be an existential threat to America. You've heard recently the idea that, well, maybe we just talk about terrorism too much. Maybe we shouldn't cover it so much in the media. That's all coming at this idea as, hey, we'll be okay in America, too bad for there. And that sounds a little, little harsh, but fundamentally, it's a bit more of an isolationist, our interest point of view. I think we would would like to advocate that God cares about that, even if it doesn't threaten the existence of America. It touches God's heart, it touches our heart, and we want to go be a part of making that right in the world. So I think we do need to confront terrorism and oppression and expansionism and imperialism in the world and suffering in the world as we can and where we can through the many different gifts we've been given to do it. That's what I think the biblical idea of engagement is about. And I think that's kind of fits into that God setting the world right, using his people to do justice in the world. Well, next time, change subject just a little bit. Let's talk about immigrants and refugees. I want to talk about building walls. And should we build walls? Should we let everybody who wants into our nation? Should we have porous borders? Is everybody welcome? How do you deal with refugees when you get this on a massive scale? How do you balance the welfare of the people in in our country or in our church or in our city 
with the welfare of the people around the world. And that's why this issue of immigration and refugees is such a hotly contested issue. And we'll take a look next time at what the Bible has to say about that. Thanks, guys.